Well, good evening. And I think we'll just get right into our study tonight. We'll be picking up in Deuteronomy, in chapter 23. Tonight we're going to close out the final section of Moses walking through the law as it was given in Exodus, gathering examples to make his primary point and call Israel to keep the covenant. Now, we had been talking about the fact that uh, there is a semi-discernible structure in Moses' exposition of the law that seems to follow what we know as the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. Um, Usually, the place where this starts to kind of fall down the stairs and not work as well as other sections is these last four chapters that we'll look at tonight. Um, But I did have a thought on why that might be the case. If you reflect on the ten words as they're given, uh, as we move through the list, after honor your father and mother, then there is you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, that's six and seven, and then the last three all have to do with your neighbor. Specifically, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet the things that belong to your neighbor. And so it's possible that the reason why it's hard to discern the boundaries between this structure and the chapters we're looking at (coughs) tonight is because there's so much overlap in those things. But either way, when commentators try and use the Ten Commandments to organize the data, um, this is the hardest section, which is why probably over and over again your Bible uh, titles the sections of tonight miscellaneous laws, okay? Because it seems to bounce around and touch on many issues, and it's hard sometimes to know why they're organized in this way. Um, But let's begin in chapter 23, verse 1. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. We're starting strong tonight. Verse 2. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. Notice that this list of exclusion uh, continues. Verse 3. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all their days forever. And so we have three categories of exclusions. And notice that the exclusions here are from the assembly of the Lord. Okay, That's one of the interpretive questions we have to ask tonight is, what is the assembly of the Lord? Okay, Now, <clears throat> when the Greek Septuagint translators took this idea of assembly and gave it a Greek word, uh, they used the Greek word ekklesia or ecclesia. Okay? It's the word we get church from. Okay? In the New Testament, the Greek word that's used over and over again that we translate as church is this same word. 
It's the same one that's used in the very beginning of our story in Exodus um, chapter 20 when all of Israel is assembled around Mount Sinai. Okay. Now, that still doesn't get us very far, and so here's the range of what it could be referring to. It could be talking to specifically assembling at currently, present tense, the tabernacle, or in the future, once they enter into the land, the tabernacle in Jerusalem, and then ultimately the temple. In other words, no one is allowed in the court of the tabernacle that fulfills these conditions, but it may be that it's talking more generally as, uh, about the assembly of the Lord, in other words, the people of Israel, the worshipers of God. Whichever it refers to, it's still a striking list, and it deals primarily with three different categories. Those who have been castrated, um, those who are from a forbidden union, we'll talk more about what that word means in just a second, and then specifically descendants of the Ammonites and the Moabites. Okay. Now, <clears throat> the, the things we need to keep in mind tonight as, as we look in this, uh, first and foremost is that exclusion is built into relationship with God in the Old Testament covenant, okay? Uh, if you read through the book of Leviticus, this exclusion plays out extensively for people who are in particular health conditions, for people who are in particular statuses of life. Um, everybody, except for one day a year, is excluded from the most holy place, the holy of holies, okay? There's this curtain, this dividing, and the high priest only enters in once a year, and that with the blood of a sacrifice. Beyond that, everyone who's not a priest is excluded from the holy place. And then beyond that, everyone who has certain unclean conditions is excluded from the tabernacle, at least temporarily or seasonally or while the condition exists. Um, <coughs> and so... So what we're finding here is another layer or level of exclusion that ultimately has to do with who God is and symbolically how the tabernacle or maybe even how the nation of Israel is to work. Okay? That brings us to our second point, which we need to realize, uh, which is that these things, although they're stated in um, long-standing terms, specifically for uh, the child of a forbidden union, or for the Ammonites and the Moabites, it says excluded to the 10th generation, and then it clarifies, when we say 10th, we just mean forever, okay? It's 10th is just uh, a idiom here that's being used that actually means permanent exclusion, but that permanent exclusion, as we'll see in just a minute, is not actually permanent. In the same way that the nation of Israel, as seen in the Old Testament, or the Old Covenant, is not actually permanent permanent. So we need to keep those things in mind. Um, <coughs> so let's look at these exclusions and see if we can make sense of them. The first one has to do with uh, castration. And when it says um, testicles is crushed or whose male organ is cut, it's talking about what is called in other passages a eunuch. And we're not told here how somebody came to this condition. We read testicles are crushed and we naturally assume accident. That may not be the case here. There were certain different methods in the ancient world of cultivating and creating, creating eunuchs, and eunuchs were used for both political and religious purposes. Okay? And this was uh, true across the ancient Near East. 
The concern may here be with the fact uh, that we've seen, especially in the book of Leviticus, that God is a God of life. And so anything that speaks of death is excluded. Everything that speaks of death. And so here we have a man whose procreative ability is, ability is hampered, and so that cultivates or creates exclusion. <clears throat> um, another possibility here. Uh, is that it is referring specifically to religious eunuchs, okay? those who in the worship of other gods have castrated themselves as an act of worship. Okay? And so it may be that exclusion, but nonetheless, as we read the text, there's no opportunity here for repentance or conversion necessarily, just exclusion. Right? There's no way back in for someone who has made this choice or has had this done to him. It's just exclusion here. It's the same in the second one, verse 2. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, if you have an older translation, like the King James, it's going to say, no one who is a bastard. Okay? And so, in our minds, that makes us think merely of someone who's born outside of the confines of the covenant of marriage. Um, but this word seems to be more specific than that, okay? Most of the time it's used in the ancient documents that involve Hebrew that we have, as well as the ancient Near East languages that seem similar to this, it's actually referring to incestual relationships, uh, as well as, um, as categorically um, beyond just fornication, for example. But even this uh, this Restriction seems terribly extreme. In fact, notice here that whatever, whatever has happened here, it's the child, not the person who made the choice in this relationship who's excluded. It doesn't mean they aren't excluded as well. I'm just saying that here it makes clear that the child is excluded. In fact, if that child has children, even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. Then when we read the third one, it focuses specifically on two different people groups, the Ammonites and the Mennonites. And this might actually illuminate what we just read about forbidden relationships because Ammon and Moab are, uh, are actually related to Israel. If you go back to the book of Genesis, Abraham's cousin Lot, Ammon and Moab, the founders of these two communities of people, are his grandchildren. And it's kind of a rough story, but they're his grandchildren through his own daughters who, feeling like they're never going to have a chance to get married after the, uh, the context of Sodom and Gomorrah, decide the only way that they can carry on their father's line is to get him drunk and impregnate themselves without him knowing. Okay? And so it's, it's kind of intense. Um, but that's not the reason that's given here. Specifically, the Ammonites and the Moabites are excluded because of their treatment of Israel as they were moving through the wilderness. In fact, notice that this is not some form of merely xenophobia, because something very different is stated in verse 7. You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. Okay? Now, Edom also has a close familial tie to Abraham and Isaac. Uh, specifically, Edom, or Esau, is the brother of Jacob. Okay? And so here, they're not to restrain or restrict the Edomites because of that close relational tie. Now, interestingly enough, the Edomites are often hostile 
against Israel. And so you can read, for example, the minor prophet of Obadiah, and he's going to directly criticize Edom for their treatment of Israel. But they're distinguished. So there's Moab and Ammon on this side, and then there's Edom on this side. And then look at who else is on the list. What does it say next? You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you were a sojourner in his land. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. Okay, and so there's still a bit of exclusion there. Egyptians right now are excluded, but third generation Egyptians, three you know, lifetimes from now, they're allowed in. Um, and notice the reason, because you were a sojourner in his land. Now, that's only half the story. They were also enslaved by the Egyptians. My point is, when we look at all this, it can be hard both in the modern sense um, and even in just the logical sense of trying to piece together the passage to understand really what's going on here, why these distinctions and divisions are made. But it does become an important and primary plot point in the Bible. Okay. This exclusion, like I said, is designed in the DNA of how God builds the tabernacle, how God builds Israel's worship, how he defines the nation of Israel. Okay. The lines that he draws constantly um, send a message of the distance between us and God. And some of those distances are clearly and inherently moral. Others of those distances seem to be um, not so much moral as they are symbolic, as they are trying to help us all understand where we're at through the shoes of someone else. Okay. So, <clears throat> for example... The, lay, the law lays this out, and then we have some interesting challenges to it later in the Bible, things that we have to deal with. So, for example, Moabites are excluded from the assembly of Israel up to the 10th generation, okay? But we know a very significant Moabite in the history of Israel, a woman named Ruth. In the book of Ruth, no less than seven times does it remind us that Ruth is a Moabitess. And yet, through God's provision, she becomes the wife of Boaz and therefore the great-grandmother, or yeah, the great-grandmother, great-great-grandmother of King David. So if we read this as being solely uh, exclusive of all people, then King David himself is not allowed in the assembly of Israel. Okay? And so <clears throat> we're forced to ask then, what is the difference here? Why does this not seem to apply to Ruth? Or is it possible that what Moses is doing here is in some way merely rhetorical? That he's making a point, but the point is theological in nature and not uh, legal in nature. Okay? I would say that's probably pushing too far. But that's the first place where we see, start to see God doing something different. In fact, let me remind you that that's not the only descendant uh, of David who we find on this list. Okay? If you go all the way back to Perez, Perez is the son of a forbidden relationship because Tamar right, uh, isn't being properly taken care of by her father-in-law. Her first husband, his oldest son, has died. Her second husband, his middle son, has died. And so the Leveret Law, which we'll cover tonight, means since neither of them have provided sons, uh, that their youngest son should take over, 
Uh, <coughs> Judah doesn't do that. And Tamar comes up with this plot to deceive him and becomes pregnant by Judah. And so here we have another hang-up, hiccup. And in the same line, not just a line that throws through David, but specifically a line that flows to Jesus. Okay? But here's, I think, a passage that at least starts to shed light uh, on this. And we find it in the book of Isaiah. If you want to turn there, you can. <clears throat> it is worth reiterating again especially because we won't arrive in the prophets for at least a few years in our study through the Bible, that the prophets' primary foundation, the grist for their mill, the thing that they're referencing, repeating, in fact, the thing that they're calling Israel back to in their ministry is the Old Testament law known as Deuteronomy. It flows throughout their books over and over again. The concern that the prophets show for the poor and the foreigner, as we've seen, is drawn right from Deuteronomy. And it's the same thing here. Notice the correlation between this passage in Isaiah 56 and what we just read in Deuteronomy 23. Okay, now, in the context of the book of Isaiah... He's, he's been talking about how God's going to do this new thing in the future. He's been talking about how he's going to raise up this servant of the Lord. And in Isaiah 53, we see this servant of the Lord obediently taken all the way to death. And then we see the new covenant, God's great plan coming out of this in the following chapters. One of those following chapters is here in chapter 56. Notice verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord, say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Sound familiar? So Isaiah speaks and he says, you foreigner who have united yourself with God, no longer say, surely God is going to separate me, keep me out of the assembly. He continues, and let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. Okay, I can't have any children. For thus says the Lord to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbaths, who chooses the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Notice the clear pun there. Okay? His lineage has been cut off through becoming a eunuch, but his name through God's honoring of him, will not be cut off. And then notice verse 6, And the foreigner who joins themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone <coughs> excuse me, who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. I'll make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Now notice a few things about this text. One, hopefully it's self-evident, he's clearly speaking to the verses we just read. Clearly. That's why he talks about the foreigners and the eunuchs together and talks about them being cut off from the assembly of Israel. Second, Notice here that this is speaking in the future tense. Okay? God is saying, this is something I'm going to do. Okay? One of the challenges in understanding the Bible, which often leads to a criticism 
of the validity of the Bible is apparent contradictions. And so people read a passage like Deuteronomy, and then they read a passage like this, and they go, wait a minute, that's incongruent. And one of the things you have to recognize is that the Bible, <coughs> the Bible's story continues. And as the story continues, things change. And that's okay. That's normal. In fact, in the Old Testament, Israel offers sacrifices, but when Jesus comes, the one true sacrifice, no other sacrifice is necessary. That's not a contradiction, that's a consummation, okay? The way that I often think about uh, criticizing the Bible in this way without recognizing the big story that the Bible is telling is like being mad that a crosswalk just said walk and now it says don't walk, and so we have no idea what to do, right? The time has changed. The context has changed. What God is talking about through Isaiah here is that there's coming a time where significantly those barriers are going to be removed, where God's plan moves from phase one to phase two. Let me paint this picture in the broadest way I know how, walking through the Bible as a whole. When you read the first 11 chapters of Genesis, everything in it is universal. We have Adam and Eve universally our first parents. We have the universal origin of nations and languages in the Tower of Babel. We have a universal flood, okay? All of those things deal with the whole world and the descendants of the whole world. And then suddenly in chapter 12, it shifts to dealing with one man and his descendants, Abraham. Come out to a land that I will show you and I will make of you a nation, I will make of you a people. I will give you many descendants, right? And it starts to narrow in. Now, it's worth noticing, even there in Genesis 12, verse 3, that God is getting exclusive for an inclusive reason, or he's getting, um, getting narrow for a broad reason. He tells Abraham this. He says, I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to give you this land and these descendants, and through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Okay, so God's plan becomes particular, but for a universal reason. That particularity carries all the way through this focus in the Old Testament on the people of Israel, all the way until the coming of Jesus. Okay? And if you want to counterbalance uh, Genesis 12, the best place to see that start to reverse and go universal again is in Acts chapter 2. Okay? Jesus tells his disciples, you will go out into all nations and proclaim what you have seen, but first wait in Jerusalem. And then what happens on Acts chapter 2 is that message starts to go out. And first, Jewish people who live all over the world hear the gospel proclaimed in their own language. And then it starts to go out into Judea, Samaria, and then all the way to the ends of the earth. Okay? <clears throat> what we have then is a parenthetical period in God's plan. Open parenthesis on Abraham and his descendants, close parentheses on uh, the day of Pentecost as the message starts to go forth. But that's part of the plan. That's God's design. He's cultivating a particular people so he can send a particular people their Messiah, and then those particular people can start to proclaim that Messiah to the ends of the earth. Okay? And so what we see in Isaiah is he starts to foresee when these things are going to be removed. In fact, exclusion itself is broken down in the gospel of Christ. This is illustrated in the gospel's telling of the crucifixion story. 
One of the Gospels in particular tells us that while Jesus hung on the cross, after he died, that the veil in the temple was rent in two. Okay? And specifically, it's referring to the veil uh, between the holy place and the holy of holies. Right? The most inaccessible aspect of Israel's worship is suddenly torn open. A way is made through. The exclusion is no longer there. In fact, more significantly in the book of Acts, we see this brought forward. In Acts chapter 8, a man named Philip, who is a deacon, uh, maybe a proto-deacon, the term isn't actually used of him, but when we look at deacons later, uh, a few decades later, it seems to be based on his office. But nonetheless, Philip's purpose in the church of Jerusalem is to help take care of those in need in the church. He gets an opportunity to head out to Samaria and evangelize, tell them about Jesus, and there's a huge response. And then he feels God just calling him into the wilderness. And so he goes. And he's wandering through, and while he's there in Acts chapter 8, he sees a chariot. And in the chariot is a man, an Ethiopian eunuch, both a foreigner and a eunuch. And guess what book he's reading? Isaiah. And as he's reading there, Philip runs up and says, do you understand what you're reading? That scroll, I recognize it, that's Isaiah. And he says, how can I unless someone teaches me? So Philip gets in with him, and the eunuch asks this question, reading from Isaiah 53. This servant who dies for the sins of others, is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? And it tells us in Acts chapter 8 that beginning with that passage, he declared to him the things about Jesus. Okay? But I want you to realize that if the eunuch had this scroll, and if he's trying to understand Isaiah 53, it's probably for the sake of what happens next in Isaiah 56. He knows what it's like to feel this exclusion firsthand. He's somehow been drawn to worship the God of Israel. He's carrying the scroll of Isaiah, which is a significant financial investment in that day, right? Usually a synagogue would have a scroll of Isaiah. You wouldn't have one, you know, a pocket version that you take home with you. But he has a personal copy of Isaiah. And there, he becomes a Christian. He enters in, right? The exclusion is over. In fact, let me point this out, okay? In Acts chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, we see three stories of conversion. One is the Ethiopian eunuch, another is Cornelius, and the final one is Paul. Going all the way back to the book of Genesis, each one of those is a representative of Noah's three kids, the ones that we all stem from when the world break, breaks up. Uh, Paul is from the line of Shem. The eunuch of Ethiopia is from Ham. And Cornelius is from Japheth. Okay? Culturally, where they settle, where they come from, Roman, Jewish, Ethiopian, that's where they come from. It seems as if Luke, who, by the way, loves the book of Genesis and is constantly referencing it, it seems as if Luke is trying to make a point. There's lots of conversions in the early church. In Acts chapter 2, he tells us of 3,000, but we don't get their names, we don't get their descent, but right there in the book, he lays out three as it begins to go to the world. They're intentionally laid out to show the broadness of God's invitation to the kingdom of God, okay? So, all of that to say that this exclusion is not merely temporary, and we shouldn't go, oh, well, at least we're no longer under the Old Testament. It's significant in the fact that it's saying something. Each one of these things shows the distance 
between man and God, and we can utilize that distance to measure the price that Jesus paid to bring us back. Okay? So, with that in mind, let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 23. Verse 9, when you are encamped against your enemies, you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. So notice the context here. The rules that we're about to read have to do with the military camps of Israel. There are seven different passages in Deuteronomy that deal with warfare practices. This is number six. I can't actually do six with one hand. That's why I'm trying to gesture numbers and I can't. Um, This is number six. But notice what it is. If any man among you becomes unclean because of a nocturnal emission, then he shall go outside the camp. He shall not come inside the camp. But when evening comes, he shall bathe himself in water. As the sun sets, he may come inside the camp. Now, we have to ask ourselves why this rule exists. And the first thing you have to understand is that Leviticus already deals with this in the people of Israel in general. Okay? Uh, The second thing I want to point out is, although nocturnal emission sounds really clear in the English here, uh, there's a lot of interpretation the translators are bringing. This may be talking about what we would call a nocturnal emission. It also might be talking about urinating, okay? Especially considering what comes next in the passage. The Hebrew that's used is somewhat vague, okay? It's, It's effectively if a man dirties himself in the night, okay? So it may be just a guy who gets up in the middle of the night and just steps outside his tent and urinates as opposed to leaving the camp. Okay? But either way, the significance of this rule is that the same practices of clean and unclean and the presence of God in the midst of the people applies for the soldiers on the road as much as it does Israel at home. That's why this law is brought up. It's recognizing the fact that soldiers don't get a pass just because they're soldiers or just because they're hard at work. And that's why it goes on and it gives us uh, uh, more specifics in verse 12. You shall have a place outside the camp and you shall go out to it. You'll have a trowel with your tools and when you sit down outside, you'll dig a hole with it and turn back and cover up your excrement. Okay. Now that sounds just plain hygienic. We almost wish it didn't need to be said, but if you've traveled the world, you know there are plenty of places that don't even have practices like this in place, okay? But the reason he gives is not hygienic, verse 14, because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. Therefore, the camp must be holy so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. The reminder here is that the military encampment is an extension of the people of Israel. Okay? And so there's just a connection between these things. Now, that might not seem important to you, but remember that the military of Israel is an extension of the people of God. That they weren't to be a militaristic nation. They never kept a standing army. If they were at war, it was God fighting for them. And so we find consistently that the way they operate in warfare is constantly tied to worship. There was to be thanksgiving and sacrifices. The priests are present before they go to war. You may remember that we saw last week that the priests stand before them and say, before you go out, do not be afraid. The Lord fights with you, right? This is not... Um, necessarily inherently applicable to the front lines in Af- Afghanistan for American soldiers. That's not what we're talking about. 
The recognition has to do with the nation of Israel and this holiness principle, the need for cleanliness, this constant reminder of how different God is from us as played out in this way. Now we move on to laws that are more accessible and applicable. So verse 15, you shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him, you shall not wrong him. So clearly the idea here is of a runaway slave. And we need to be careful of not thinking of the galley slave of Rome or, uh, or American slavery even. Um, what's being inferred in the ancient world is a little bit different. It has those aspects, but for one, it's not racial. It's usually debt that leads somebody into slavery and sometimes war. Um, but the second thing here is we, we have to ask where this applies, okay? Because generally, since in other places in Deuteronomy it recognizes the right and proper treatment of slaves, we can't just take this as being a denial of the institution of slavery, as much as we'd like clarity on that issue in the Bible. But then again, we have to go, how in the world do these things work together? Some have suggested that this applies specifically to a refugee. In other words, a foreign slave who flees to the nation of Israel. Okay. But notice that's not in the text. It doesn't specify. We read, <coughs> we read a little while ago that when people in Israel took a debt servant, who was another Israelite, into their care, at the most, they could be serving for six years, and on the seventh, they had to be released. And when they were released, they had to be given many good things, enough to start a new life with, right? We also learned that if the servant desired to stay permanently on with his master's care, he could do so, okay? So here's the point. The premise here is that some man's slavery or servanthood is so significantly bad that he runs from it. You see, what I'm trying to say here is that the, the slavery envisioned in the Old Testament for Israel is qualitatively concerned about the rights of those who were in employment. It's qualitatively focused on it being a circumstance that is not taking advantage of people, that is not taking people and treating them like property. Okay. In fact, we'll see in just a minute that kidnapping someone and selling them into slavery is punishable by death. It's almost amazing, isn't it, when you read these verses and then think back on American history and the part that the Bible sometimes played in slavery? Because these passages seem pretty clear. You know, not, not just this one that, that reminds us of like the Underground Rail, Railroad, for example, and how the North responded to, to slavery and runaway slaves, um, but the kidnapping one, how does that not apply to the entire African slave trade to begin with? Which is exactly what it was, right? But nonetheless, we need to recognize here that this shows that mistreatment of slaves, period, biblically is inappropriate and is grounds for the eradication of that slavery. Now, in our modern world, like I said, we might read this and we go, it doesn't go far enough. Why doesn't it just abolish the whole thing instead of just taking the teeth out of it? Just for comparison. Are you familiar with the Code of Hammurabi? 
okay? If we're looking for a similar ancient legal document of an ancient legal people in the ancient Near East, the Code of Hammurabi is one of the best we have, one of the most complete we have. In the Code of Hammurabi, it addresses the same problem of a runaway slave. The difference, both the slave and the one who harbors him fall under severe penalty. There is nothing like this in our ancient world records. Nothing. But Israel was supposed to be a people who did things differently. They were unique. And so they were to be a sanctuary when there was mistreatment. One of the things we're going to see throughout the rest of our reading tonight is the constant protection, preservation, and concern for the rights of the most vulnerable. And so it's just stated here very clearly, not only are they to protect him, but they're also to make room for him. Notice what it says again. He shall dwell with you in your midst in a place that he shall choose within one of your towns. Wherever it suits him, you shall not wrong him. And so we don't even see him treated here as a second-class citizen. But given an opportunity to start a life and become part of the community, in fact, do you notice that phrase, in the place that he shall choose? That's used a lot in Deuteronomy. And it's used specifically of God choosing what we know as Jerusalem, choosing the place where the tabernacle is going to be. By using that same language for the runaway slave here, it's connecting significantly those two ideas. Okay, We'll see more on that as we move along tonight. I just wanted to throw it out there for now. Verse 17. None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, and none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God in payment for any vow, for both these are an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, if it was two, three years ago, I would have taken this and explained that many of the religions around Israel used sex in their worship of their gods, and so they had these cult prostitutes, as it says here in English, in their employ. And that that's primarily what it's been speaking of here. We're starting to question that as we're looking more broadly at the ancient records. The scholars who study these things are starting to go, actually, maybe that practice isn't as widespread and as accepted as we thought. Um, It may even be here that what's being talked about here that's labeled cult prostitute, which is just a single word, isn't actually sexual at all. And that what's really being talked about here are... Um, priests of other religions. But it's a little bit up in the air, okay? It's a little bit difficult. And the second half, the fee of the prostitute, that's not the same word, okay? And so mention there of prostitution and that money not being something that you can bring in for your tithes and offerings makes us think that probably it all goes together. Um, But either way, The recognition here is that that's not to be a part of their worship practice, uh, that it's not an acceptable employment for the young women and the young men of Israel. It is interesting how throughout Israel's history, sex and idolatry go hand in hand. As one goes, so goes the other. And so we have the forming of the golden calf, and then we have this orgiastic party. And then later in Israel's history, as they begin to worship other gods, many of them are fertility gods. In fact, um, the criticisms that Amos makes 
He says, for three transgressions and for four, I will bring judgment on the house of Israel. Okay, there's three categories that he names. One is idolatry. One is economic injustice. And the third one is sexuality. Those are the three things that are touched on. But they all seem to go together to the degree that one of the prophet's primary metaphors for Israel's not keeping the covenant is sexual infidelity. That they have been unfaithful to the Lord, adulterous, In fact, we're not going to read it tonight, but in the book of Ezekiel, the most explicit passages in the entire Bible are devoted to describing Israel's history with God in terms of sexual infidelity. So there's this, this connection between these two things, but the warnings are built right here into Deuteronomy. And notice verse 19, you shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, Interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of. Now, a couple of things, okay? Uh, The Old King James Bible and English history predating the Old King James translated this with the word usury. Okay. It's still a word we sometimes throw around, but it doesn't come up very often. But the concept did evolve. Okay. What it says here in Deuteronomy is that no Israelite was to charge any other Israelite any amount of interest. And that view was maintained and applied to Christians for the first maybe 1,200 years of church history. About the time of the Reformation, a little bit before that, what we would call the Dark Ages or medieval Christianity, they started seeing some appropriate levels of interest, and usury was this word that they coined in English to apply to too much. Okay? And so the church, uh, the Catholic Church in particular, and then also the Protestant churches under Luther and Calvin would often set a limit. If you're a grocer, you can't charge more than this in interest. Okay? And they would set the limit. And sometimes the limit would shift and it would be argued about. But usury then became uh, charging an exorbitant amount of interest. 13, 15, 30, 45%. But originally the concept and originally for Christians had to do with interest uh, as a concept. Not in amount, but at all. That's a clear reading of this passage. Okay, in fact, notice that they're not to charge interest not just on money, that would be a loan, but on food or anything that is lent for interest. Anything that is lent for interest, what does that imply? Unlike the rest of the practices that you're familiar with in other nations and other people, everything you know of your history, right? anything that's normally lent for interest, you will loan interest-free. Okay? We see throughout Deuteronomy an emphasis on caring for the neighbor. Okay. Deuteronomy, in some sense, is just an unpacking of what it says in Leviticus when it says you will love your neighbor as yourself. And so it's constantly reiterated. And so why does somebody need a loan? Because they're in a time of need. And so instead of just saying that, um, that we should give to those in need, constantly it says we should loan, but it sets caveats on that loan. Clearly, what this means is that it's not appropriate to benefit from the poverty of others. 
That's the concept, if we're going to just get to the baseline of it. Now, I don't necessarily know what to do uh, with that when we're in an American economy that actually makes money by moving money, right? It, <coughs> does this have reference to the American stock market? I don't know. Uh, I, don't, I don't know necessarily how to do those things. And even John Calvin, and this is kind of where it begins, goes, uh, goes, I'm unwilling, he says in his commentary on this verse, I'm unwilling to say that there is no valid form of usury. But then he goes on and he says, but I'm not going to do it. He says, there may be cases that are okay and appropriate, measurable and tolerable. Um, you know, and like I said, that's when they start to to move in this different direction. But as I constantly illustrate with, because this concept comes up so much, loaning to the poor comes up so much in the Pentateuch in these first five books, let me once again reiterate that the thing that it would definitely decry and set aside is the payday loan. Okay? These organizations that are built to make profits on the poorest of poor in their worst of circumstances, that charge exorbitant rates to people in their time of need and actually make wealth on the backs of the most poor. I think this was also, would also have uh, great implications or applications on redlining, okay? This American historical practice where they defined what neighborhoods could receive home loans and what ones were not viable for it. And it was often driven by racial prejudice, okay? The purpose of loans uh, is focused here. In fact, we read earlier in Deuteronomy that if someone comes with a need and asks for a loan, you effectively have to give them the loan. You can't turn them down. The concern here is that they would take care of one another and they see that as a limitation on personal wealth. That's the point. Uh, and then it jumps around again, verse 21. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You will be careful to do what passes from your lips, for you have voluntary vow voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Now, just by way of reminder, the way a vow worked in Israel was oftentimes you found yourself in circumstances, and so you said, God, if you provide for me, then I will bring about my vow. And so you designate something. Or you would do a vow, like a Nazarite vow, which was an expression of dedication. God, I want to worship you in a more profound and deep way, and so I'm entering into this vow. And that was allowed and even encouraged. The recognition here is that it should never become flippant. Okay? that vows should actually mean something. And this is something that Jesus communicates in the Sermon on the Mount as well. In fact, let's go ahead and turn there in Matthew chapter 5. By way of illustration, I made a mistake early in my parenting by trying to come up with a tagline to teach my kids how to be good. And the tagline was this, Thomas's keep their promises. And what happened was I turned my children into vow police who were constantly complaining that the other one had said they would do something and now would not, okay, which was not my point. But what got me thinking in that direction and what I've had to think beyond uh, is what, <coughs> what Jesus says here about oaths in 533, 
Again, you've heard that it was said of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Sound familiar? Okay, it's probably not this passage in Deuteronomy 23, but one of the correlating ones that he's referring to, verse 34. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no, any more than this comes from evil. Here's the circumstances in Jesus' day that he's talking about. There were people who got out of promises they made because they hadn't used the high ticket items, okay? And so these were legal loopholes where it's like, well, I didn't, you know, I didn't swear by God, but merely by his throne. So I don't actually have to keep it, right? Uh, The idea here is that we are totally capable of playing verbal games, like with my kids. Now I'm having to rely once again on the difference between yeah, I'll do that, and I promise I'll do that, just because now everything is a promise, and I'm having to teach them the gradation here. But Jesus is warning against the opposite extreme. The fact that we, uh, we create all these complexities in our language specifically so that we don't have to keep our word. And he says, instead, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. The only reason I wanted to touch on this passage from Jesus is because clearly what we're reading in Deuteronomy is significant. And Jesus here is talking not merely about the vows we make to God, but also the promises we make to one another. Let me just point to one more place. This is in Psalm 15. The purpose of Psalm 15 is to um, kind of explain what righteousness is. Okay. It's kind of a shorthand reminder of how to keep the covenant. And so it opens with a question. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what's right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, does not take up reproach against a friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors and fears the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Okay. So there's all these things on the list. It's that last one I want to draw your attention to. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. The idea here is that you make a promise and then you realize that it was a mistake to make the promise. Or the circumstances you're in changes. Okay? So imagine that you promise that you're going to do something for somebody because you know you're expecting this windfall check. And then for some reason you don't get the windfall check. That's what it means to keep a promise to your own harm. Maybe you make a promise and it's not as good of a deal as you thought it was. Maybe they're not playing fairly. Maybe it's like the Gibeonites in the book of Joshua and they come and they say, we want you to make a peace treaty with us. We came from far away, we're no threat to you and then the peace treaty is made and you come over the hill and they're the next city down. That's what it means to keep a promise to your own harm. And here in Deuteronomy, here in Psalm 15, Jesus emphasizes the importance of keeping our word, integrity, even at our own expense. Okay. And especially here in Deuteronomy, before God. Now, why does that need to be said? I think logically we'd, we'd think, yeah, well, saying we're going to do something to God is way more significant than saying we're going to do something to my brother or my sister. Um, but the real reason why we sometimes get away from this is because because there's a sense where God is so distant 
that it can be abused. And that making a promise before God, like, I swear to God, is inherently more powerful. Okay? That's why even in the American court system, uh, they still provide the, uh, the opportunity for someone to swear on a holy book. It's not always the Bible anymore, but it's a significant, you know, uh, scout's honor is the idea here, right? Um, but that can be abused, and so there's a reminder here of the danger of that abuse. Now notice verse 24, if you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Now, the distinction that's being drawn here uh, is effectively, where is the line for stealing? And remember that Israel is a people that are primarily on foot, so when they travel, they're going to take roads, and sometimes they're going to cut through fields, um, and so you're surrounded by all of this agrarian culture and you find yourself hungry. It says it's totally appropriate for you to walk into your neighbor's field and grab a bunch, bunch of grapes or a cluster of olives, okay? Or to take standing grain like the disciples do and rub it between your fingers, um, you know, and eat of the, of the husk grain. It says, but don't take any with you. But don't bring any tools, Okay? What we see here, again, is, is a commitment to care for one another as a community. But there's also some boundary setups for the lack of abuse. The Old Testament law recognizes personal property. Okay. But it also recognizes the need we have to take care of one another. And so um, <clears throat> one of the places this plays out, obviously, is with the poor. In fact, Israel is told earlier that they're not to glean to the very corners of their fields, but they're to leave some so that the poor can come and harvest the corners of their fields, okay? This is a, a welfare program that's established in Israel, and clearly it applies right here. If someone is hungry, that need always trumps in the Old Testament regulation. In fact, this plays out a very interesting way in Jesus' ministry in a way that's not talked about here, but is related. And so, as I mentioned, there's this an occasion where Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field of standing grain, and they're basically doing what they're allowed to do here. But all of a sudden, out of the bushes, jump the Pharisees, and they, they pull an aha. And they're like, hey, wait a minute, don't you know it's the Sabbath? And here you are doing work. You're grinding grain, right, with their hands to make, you know, just a little bit of wheat to eat. Uh, and Jesus has this conversation about the meaning of the Sabbath. And what he says is, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He says, look, if there's somebody in need on the Sabbath, you take care of them. In the same way that if your donkey fell in a ditch, you'd help him out of the ditch, even if it's the Sabbath. You don't wait till tomorrow, okay? Uh, he takes a woman who is bound over physically incapable of standing upright and has been for over 40 years and on the sabbath he heals her and gives her freedom and he says this is what the sabbath's about okay we see the same emphasis in deuteronomy jesus is not being a revolutionary here he's reminding them of where they've come from and part of it comes from this idea that they're to be readily available to take care of the needs of their community now, I imagine you don't have standing grain. Probably you don't even have a vineyard. 
But what would it look like to apply this in your life? Clearly, one of the things it means is that we should be significantly open to taking care of immediate needs. Okay. doesn't mean we should be open to be taking advantage of. There's still such a thing as, uh, as um, personal property. And even when we see this amazing economic revolution in the early church in Jerusalem in the first few chapters of Acts, we don't see people surrendering all of their property to some authority and then it being redistributed. We see people taking what they have and caring so much about the needs of others that they give freely and generously out of it. Okay. So, chapter 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house and she departs out of her house, his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies to whom he took to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she's been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, a couple of things about this passage. First off, there's two types of Old Testament laws, the ones we find uh, in the legal books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Um, one type we call an apodictic. Okay? Thou shalt, thou shalt not. Those are apodictic. They're straight stated commands, and oftentimes they are, uh, they are not like a modern law, uh, law code. They, code. They don't unpack every circumstances. They don't draw distinctions. They just say things like, you shall not murder. Okay? The other type of law we find are casuistic. And they're really easy to spot because they always begin with that little particle if. And what they are is basically an unpacking of a circumstance to illustrate, to explain, to shape the law. Okay? Now, what we can sometimes get wrong about this passage is we can think that this is a passage about properly legislating divorce. And it is clearly not. All you have to do to see that is follow the ifs. Okay? Let me read it again. Notice when we get to the then. Right? If there's an if, there's a then. But notice where the then is. If, that first word when is actually if in the Hebrew. If a man takes a wife and marries her. If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts in her hand and sends her out of the house. And she departs out of his house. And if she goes on and becomes another man's wife. And the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. Or if that same man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. That's the actual law that's being stated here. Now, it's a relatively narrow law, is it not? The circumstances of this require a couple of things. That a man marries a woman, that a man dislikes the woman because of a particular reason we'll talk about in a second and divorces her, and then she remarries another man, and that man either divorces her or dies, then we get to the rule. Okay? I say that because this is not a passage that is legislating divorce. It assumes divorce as part of the context. What it's actually doing is dealing with something specific. And so here, this doesn't give men the right to divorce their wives. 
It protects women from the abuse of men divorcing their wives. That's a different thing. Okay. It's a different thing. Now, we should deal with something just because it's hard to understand. Um, the rabbis looked at this and they went, okay, it says that divorce is applicable if a man finds some indecency in her. Okay. Uh, and there was some question, okay, so what are proper reasons for divorcing your spouse? The word here for some indecency is uh, in the Hebrew, erwat debar. It is not a minor thing, okay? Um, it's actually very closely related to uh, how excrement is complained about in the chapter earlier. It speaks of something significantly defiling, okay? Now, also, the way that erwat debar is used in Leviticus is almost always dealing with sexual sin. But we know this isn't talking about adultery specifically because the adultery punishment was death and here the consequence is divorce. But nonetheless, it seems that this involves some sort of sexual thing, but I want you to notice the second thing here, that it says specifically um, that she finds no favor in the man's eyes, or some translations say he hates her. If he hates her, and find some indecency in her, and divorces her. But what's really going on here? Okay, the, the recognition is um, that through divorce, in those days and age, a wife becomes precariously vulnerable. Okay? In fact, that partially involves why she needs a certificate of divorce. That's not just a legal process. In fact, the way that this is envisioned doesn't involve some sort of civil authority at all. This is happening in the family, right? It happens at their table. He writes it down on paper and hands it to her. What does that do for the man? It frees him up of economic responsibility to care for his wife, but what does it do for the woman? It shows that the marriage has been ended, okay? So, if her and her circumstances, and remember, in the ancient world, there weren't a lot of ways for women to make it in the world on their own, okay? Uh, that certificate of divorce gives her the opportunity to remarry, okay? So that her husband can't jump out of a closet and accuse her of adultery and have her put to death. But what's envisioned here? Okay, it goes through the first time, and then she remarries, and then the man, for some reason, wants this woman back. Specifically, notice what it says. He may not take her again, verse 4, to be his wife after she has been defiled. Now, been defiled there, we have to ask, who's doing the defiling? And the point is that the man has defiled her in divorcing her. Okay, That's the idea here. After she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. The point here is that the husband has been flippant. He's used divorce for his own reasons, for his own favor. He wants to have his cake and eat it too, right? And, and effectively, what he's doing then is causing or trying to cause his wife to have an adulterous relationship and then take her back. Now, two things, okay? First off, it's this law that becomes an illustration of the behavior of Israel. Remember I told you that one of the primary metaphors in the Old Testament prophets uh, for Israel's unfaithfulness is in terms of sexuality. Generally, that involves seeing their relationship with God like a marriage. So listen here to the words of Jeremiah chapter 3. 
If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not the land be greatly polluted? Sound familiar? Notice how he applies it. You, Israel, have played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me, declares the Lord? Okay, what he's emphasizing is the seriousness of what's been going on here. Now, Jeremiah's message is incredible because he actually says the answer is yes, that he's going to go above and beyond the law. And we're not talking about here of divorce and remarriage. We're talking about adultery and infidelity. Okay, but it draws from this law to make that point and picture. The second thing that we need to look at is how Jesus deals with this law. In Matthew 19, the Pharisees come seeking to trap Jesus, and they use this passage to do it. And so the question they ask is, is it lawful to divorce a woman for any reason? Okay. And uh, Jesus' res- response is really telling about how we should think about this law. He says, um, he says that he who created them male and female said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So he quotes from the book of Genesis. Then he says, therefore, what God has brought together, let no man tear asunder. He goes, haven't you read Genesis? God does something significant in marriage in making two people one. Why would you tear that apart in divorce? And they go, but why did Moses, why did Moses command us to write a certificate of divorce? And Jesus says, Moses permitted you to write a certificate of divorce because of your hardness of heart, but in the beginning it was not so. And then he goes on and he says this to his own followers, to Christians. He says, but I tell you that anyone who divorces their spouse except for adultery, except for sexual immorality, makes them an adulterer. Okay. Paul builds on this in 1 Corinthians 7 and talks about these things as well. But here's the point. Okay. <clears throat> we see this law taking the context that Israel is already in. Divorce laws were very common. You can find them in the Code of Hammurabi, for example. In fact, one of the things that significantly is left out of here uh, has to do with the economics of that, which were very clear in the Code of Hammurabi. Um, But here, it takes that practice and it does two things. One, it sets restraints on it to protect the weaker person in the relationship. I'm not talking about uh, gender inherently here when I say the weaker person. I mean circumstantially in the marriage of those days. Okay. Uh, and then two, two, Jesus says that it shouldn't change the ideal of what marriage is supposed to be. And then he sets uh, a very strong limitation on it, um, dealing specifically with sexually, sexual infidelity. Now, verse 5. When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. And we saw a similar thing about Israel's standing orders when they go to war. The first thing they would do when the army of volunteers was gathered is say, have any of you recently taken a wife but not yet married her? Go home. Any of you recently planted a vineyard but haven't gotten a taste of the grapes? Go home. Any of you bought a house and haven't actually moved in yet? Go home. But this builds on this even further, and it says anyone in their first year of marriage is completely excluded, not just 
from military duty, but any form of public service. Okay. Notice how this goes alongside with what we just read. Both of them emphasize both the value of marriage and, uh, and they also emphasize the wife. Specifically, the husband is to be home to be happy with his wife whom he has taken, or literally to make his wife happy. Okay. The, the point here can't be reduced to some sort of trite, happy wife, happy life concept. The reality has to do with the purpose of marriage. And the way we often think about divorce misunderstands the purpose of marriage. And I still resonate with what G.K. Chesterton said a hundred years ago when he said that the consequence of frivolous divorce will be frivolous marriage. If people can get divorced for any reason, then they'll get married for any reason. And I cannot get around the fact that, uh, that the uh, the smaller a deal we make about divorce inherently, the smaller a deal we make about marriage. Israel made a big deal about marriage. So much that they, as a community, wanted to invest in that first year and give them the freedom from all other things so that they could just invest in the relationship. Verse 6. No one shall take a mill or an upper, upper millstone in a pledge, for that would be taking a life in a pledge. Okay? So here it's going back to the idea of loans and collateral. And it says you cannot take the mechanisms they use to feed themselves as collateral. Okay? Now, we don't have an upper millstone, but the idea here is that you can't take someone's livelihood in order as collateral. Okay? So, uh, for example... Uh, this is off the top of my head. It's not the best illustration. But if somebody uh, was in a precarious position for a loan uh, and they have a car, but that car is how they get to work in the next community, you can't take that, right? It's part of how they make a living. It's part of their provision. It's what takes care of them. Once again, the concern we see here is for the debtor, not the creditor. And once again, let me just say that capitalism has a tendency to protect the rights of the creditor and not the debtor. Um, uh, verse 7, if a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Both of these have to do with taking a life in ways that don't sound like taking a life. Okay, the first one is taking their livelihood, and it just says you're taking their life in a pledge. You're saying your death for your debt. And here it's the same thing. They're not taking their life in the sense of murdering them, but socially they are murdering them. They're denying their humanity, reducing them down to just property and selling them into slavery. And so it's treated an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, with capital punishment. Verse 8, take care in a case of leprous disease to be very careful to do according to all that the Levitical priests shall direct you. As I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on her way as you came out of Egypt. The emphasis here seems to be on just listening to the Levites, right? It's, it's a call or an appeal uh, to recognize authority. But notice here how rapid fire these are. Right? And they seem to just kind of jump around. And I'm, I'm not saying that some smarter person than me isn't going to come along and find the key of what Moses is thinking about. But remember the goal of what Moses is trying to do here in the book of Deuteronomy. 
He's trying to broadly survey the covenant to remind them to keep it. And so he illustrates from a bunch of places. Notice verse 10, when you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. So do you get the idea here? Here, you're giving your neighbor a loan, you need collateral. You can't just walk into his house and say, I'll take that. Okay, it continues here in verse 11. You'll stand outside, and the man whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. Okay. Now, at its baseline, this is, to some degree, a right to privacy. We could almost relate this, couldn't we, to uh, like the need for a warrant before you can search a house. But it's not really about privacy. And it's worth recognizing that this modern emphasis on privacy is new. Okay. But the emphasis here has to do with dignity and respect and trust. The idea is that we get to choose what the collateral is. Now, clearly, the the creditor can say yes or no. It's not like, here, take this ball of lint from my dryer as collateral is going to work. It's got to be something that's agreed upon, but it's initiated by the debtor. They can't just come in and seize whatever they want. When the People vs. O.J. Simpson came out, there was also a coinciding uh, documentary called something that had O.J. and America in it. I don't remember those two terms. Um, And one of the things that was really interesting is after the civil case, okay, because there was a federal case, uh, or there was a governmental case of murder charges against O.J., and then there was a civil case for damages by the Brown family, okay? He lost that case, and it put him in tremendous debt. And what happened was the creditors came in, and they took all of his memorabilia, all of his trophies, just grabbed everything, effectively looted his mansion. And then a few years later, he found out that some of this stuff was being sold in a hotel room in Vegas, and he stormed it with guns and went to prison. I don't know if you guys knew that story, uh, but, but it is interesting that that has to do with what we're talking about right here, that... Let's just recognize, especially when it comes to celebrities and big things like this, that everybody has an interest in what's going on. I don't really like to think about this, but how many people made money on the O.J. Simpson trial? If I remember right, O.J. even said himself, everyone at this table, everyone in this room, the courtroom is getting richer. I'm the only one who's getting poorer, right? And that doesn't justify or change any of the possibilities of what we should think about O.J. Simpson. But it is recognizing here that the significant emphasis maintained throughout Deuteronomy is the dignity. The dignity of all people. Even the capital or uh, the death row criminal we saw last week. His dignity is to be maintained. We see the same thing here. Okay. Um, notice next, <coughs> verse 12, if he is a poor man... You shall not sleep in his pledge. Okay, that sounds really weird, but the idea here is that every Israelite has an outer cloak. And so if he's so poor, that's all he has to give in a pledge. You can't take it with you and keep yourself warm while he shivers in the dark because he doesn't have it. In fact, notice it goes further. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. You know what that is? It's inconvenience. What's the point of taking collateral for a loan if you just take it every morning and every evening? You swing by and you take it back and give it back. It seems totally outlandish, and to some degree it should. The emphasis here is, once again, that the debtor is more important than the debt. 
and not to get those confused. Uh, in fact, notice verse 13, you shall restore to him the pledges the sun sets that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you and it shall be righteousness before, for you before the Lord your God. Uh, notice verse 14, you shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. The phrase here for hired servant, we could translate it day laborer. Okay? These are people for whatever reasons, whether they're foreigners passing through, uh, whether they're locals who are just in bad circumstances, are just going to be under your employ for the day. And the emphasis here is you have to pay them daily, right? Because their lives depend on it. If you, don't, if you delay their wages, they have nothing to eat, nothing to feed their families with, no way to pay their rent. That's the emphasis here. And so verse 15, you should give them wages on the same day before the sun sets, before it, because he's poor and he counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Now, that can seem like a very distant thing, and it's easy to justify and say, well, this is just the Old Testament. None of this stuff is relevant to us, but James thought so. James references this passage when he's talking about our behavior uh, in the New Testament epistle. Let's see if I can find it very quickly. He says this in James 5.4, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the lords of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You fatten your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. What he's doing there is not attacking a particular wealthy person, but this broad category, this broad reality of wealth on the back of others. And he uses this language here. He says, this is still significant today. Um, Back in Deuteronomy, verse 16, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So this is a limitation on capital punishment. Now, once again, the Code of Hammurabi is helpful. So here's one of the illustrations in the Code of Hammurabi. If you build a house and that house collapses and one of the tenants, specifically the son of the man you built it for, dies, then your son shall die as well. Okay? That's their attempt to be fair and just. And uh, Deuteronomy rightly recognizes that that's not just, that that's not fair that we are not going to be punished uh, for the sins of other people, even our closest relations. Now, maybe you read that and you go, hey, wait a minute. I've read a few books forward. Isn't Achan and his entire family put to death because of his stealing? And I think one of the things we need to recognize about that story is by nature of a family living in a tent, the whole family's in on it. The whole family's involved. They're participating in this by not doing the right thing by not making it known Um, but here that limitation is set the other thing that this sets a limitation on is vengeance killing okay and so if a man uh, if a man kills your son that man should die okay life for life but not his son right there's a recognition here it's a protection of rights again Verse 17, you shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or the fatherless 
or take a widow's garment in a pledge. Now notice verse 17 again. You will not pervert the justice due to the sojourner and the fatherless. Deuteronomy doesn't speak of what we owe uh, the weakest of society, the least of society, the most vulnerable of society in terms of charity. Just something we do out of the goodness of our own heart above and beyond. It sees it as a responsibility, a duty, and something we owe them. It sees it as justice and not mercy. And <clears throat> that's an important point. Israel is not to be a nation that, um, that should develop a heart for the poor. They owe. They owe a responsibility to the poor. And then notice it starts to illustrate this. And the first thing it says is take a widow's garment and a pledge. Okay. Now we saw earlier that a garment could be taken in a pledge. It just had to be returned. But not for a widow. Why? Okay, it's because she's even more vulnerable. And some have suggested it's because it'd be shameful. Here's this woman, and she doesn't even have an outer garment, and she's out in the streets. But more likely, the idea here uh, is that there's no one else to protect her. And so even her creditor has to become her protector. Okay, Verse 18, you will remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. The moral logic for us as Christians is similar. We should care about the poor because we were poor, okay? Because we were spiritually poor, because we know what it's like um, <clears throat> to be undeserving, because we know what it's like uh, to bear the consequences and the weights of our own bad decisions, because we know what it's like um, to be slaves, even if it's just slaves to our own sin. And so we should be soft in our hearts to those who are materially poor. And I'll illustrate this really quickly just by pointing out a difference between the Sermon on the Mount recorded in the book of Matthew and what we sometimes call the Sermon on the Plain in the book of Luke. The reason we give that one a different name is because the context of the sermon that seems like the Sermon on the Mount in Luke is not on a mountain, but in a plain. And that shouldn't surprise us because Jesus was an itinerant preacher. Okay? He didn't need to have a, a different sermon for the same congregation every week. His congregation was constantly changing. But nonetheless, in Matthew, it begins with the Beatitudes, which includes blessed are the poor in spirit. And Luke is trying heavily to make a connection between the spiritual world and the economic world. And so he just says, blessed are the poor. Why does he feel free to do that? It's because that's how closely related they are. Okay? And here's how Tim Keller puts it I think is helpful. If we think of ourselves as middle class in spirit, It'll change the way we think of the poor. If we think of ourselves as being generally at least a little bit better than other people in worse circumstances, then we won't be generous. But if we see ourselves as Jesus says the true blessing is, is being bankrupt in spirit. The word he uses there for poor means having nothing. Blessed are the destitute in spirit. Then it changes the way we view these things. Verse 19, <clears throat> still talking about not perverting the justice due to the sojourner and the fatherless. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. I already told you that they were to leave the corner of their fields unworked so that the poor could work it. If they get home and they're counting their sheaves and they go, I know I bundled 20, they can't go back. It's, it's to be left. Once again, the emphasis here is on concern for neighbors over economic value, over, you know, um, a developing of wealth. 
He continues here, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you'll not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. So unlike picking cherry trees, which I know from personal personal experience, you climb and pick individually. Olives, you would just whack the tree and the olives would fall and then you'd collect them on the ground. But they're not to just keep working if there's still olives on the tree and just keep working it until everyone is gotten. They're to leave behind some uh, for the poor, for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, this trinity of need that Deuteronomy restates over and over. Verse 21, when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. Now, I really wanted to continue, but I think we're going to close there for the night. Um, But what I want you to notice, and we'll reiterate this next week, is how many of these laws, there's a handful of them that are hard for us to swallow, understand, to do with, but the primary emphasis here is on economic justice. The primary emphasis is on taking care of those who, for whatever reasons, are the most vulnerable in any circumstance. Um, the heart of Deuteronomy is summed up in that statement, love your neighbor as yourselves. And here's the profound thing that I'm going to tell you next week, but I'm going to spoil now. When he comes to his conclusion in chapter 26, he's going to envision Israelites coming forward, bringing their offerings before the Lord, their first fruits of the harvest, and laying it before God. And then they effectively speak a creed and they say, I was a slave in the land of Egypt and God has brought me out. And then they're going to say, God has given me this blessing. And then they're going to say, and I have not withheld from the poor. And they're united. They're connected together, these three pieces. God has saved me. God gives me good things. And I have been generous. And we'll see the significance of that next week. But let's pray. Father, I think one of the things about the book of Deuteronomy is that when we read it for the first time, it seems foreign, hard to understand, odd, inapplicable. But when we read it deeply, it suddenly speaks profoundly loudly to our times and um, critiques many of our own practices and assumptions. And that's what we should expect, Lord. We should expect that your word challenges us confronts us, teaches us the way of righteousness, just as Paul says it does in 2 Timothy 3.16. And so I pray, Lord, that, um, that you would help us to see uh, practices in our own lives that we tend to justify culturally. Everybody does it. It's not a big deal. It's just the way things are with language like that. Uh, and that we would see it through a different light and that we would um, discover what Paul calls us to as Christians in the book of Galatians when he says, do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. We pray that you'd work that into us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.